Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. If you have your Bible, be turning to the book of Jeremiah once again. And keep your Bible open. We will be looking at several different passages today. But we will begin in Jeremiah 52. You know, when it comes to a good movie or a book, we often want and get a sequel. The word sequel simply means a second part that continues the theme or develops the theme of the first part. Sometimes it stretches well beyond just two volumes. I can think of the horror movies of my childhood that uh, went way past two volumes and way past where they should have gone. But just in case you are curious, here are the top three longest running movie franchises. And I would have never guessed, and I doubt you would have gotten the top one. The third is Star Trek. It has 12 movies in its franchise. Not necessarily sequels, but 12 movies in its franchise. Number two is the James Bond series with 23 movies. And number one, Godzilla. 30 movies in the Godzilla franchises. And while we usually look forward to a sequel because we enjoyed the first one, More times than not, the sequel is not as good as the first, and we are left disappointed. For whatever reason, and I don't know what that reason is, maybe we build it up and think it's going to be better than the first, and yet it often is not, though there are certainly exceptions. So you might have guessed by now that my sermon today is going to be a sequel, which means you might leave disappointed and say that was not as good as the first one. We started a series a few weeks ago that I called a crisis of biblical proportions, and we are now in our third week of that, looking at some of the major events in the Bible, some of the major crises in the Bible, so that we can see not only how God delivered them, but so that we can look at our own times of crisis and trust that God is going to deliver us. And we began by acknowledging that we as a nation are in the midst of several crises. And add to that the fact that you and your family might be in a personal crisis or a number of crises, and therefore there are certainly enough to go around. We started with the crisis of slavery from the centuries that Israel spent in Egyptian bondage. And then last week we looked at the crisis of destruction that major event in the life of Israel when the Babylonians came and utterly destroyed their homes and the city of Jerusalem and the temple and deported the majority of the people into slavery. We're going to pick up that story this week, and therefore it is a sequel. We are not moving forward hundreds of years in the history of Israel as we did last week. We are taking the very next event, that is the the deportation to Babylon. So it is a sequel in the sense that it is the developing 
adding to the theme of last week. The city has been destroyed, and now they are going into slavery. But it's also a sequel in the sense that it's the second time now that they've been in slavery. The 400-plus years in Egypt, and now we are going to look at the 70 years in Babylon. And as I said, I'm going to do things a little bit differently this morning. We're going to look at three different passages for our three separate points. So we're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 52, and we are going to see the reality of exiles. Jeremiah 52, beginning in verse 28. This is the number of people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year. 3,023 Judeans. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 30 to 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Judeans 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. And you say, well, there's really not a lot there. And you're right. This point is going to be brief. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the second point. But I wanted you to see the reality of the exiles. This is a, simply a record of the number of people that Nebuchadnezzar took away from Jerusalem and took them back to Babylon. You'll recall that last week we spent time on that 18-month siege where Nebuchadnezzar came and surrounded the city, waiting them out, cutting them off from supplies until eventually a breach was made in the city wall and the city of Jerusalem was captured, the temple was looted and destroyed, and the entire city was burned to the ground. But there were actually a series of deportations. The first one came in 605 B.C., which most scholars mark as the beginning of the 70 years of exile. I did not mention this particular deportation last week, but the most famous exile from the 605 deportation is a man you know, a man by the name of Daniel, who with his three friends were part of that first, that initial deportation. So when you read the book of Daniel, you'll know that all of that takes place in Babylon while they are there as servants and slaves. The second stage occurred in 597 BC. I mentioned this one last week. That's when Nebuchadnezzar actually took the city, but he did not burn it to the ground. He did not destroy it. He took Jehoiakim as captive. That's the king that if you look at the last few verses of Jeremiah, he was released after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. But this is the king who was taken captive, and he was replaced by Zedekiah. 2 Kings chapter 24 tells us that in this deportation, Nebuchadnezzar took some 10,000 of the officials, craftsmen, mighty men, etc. as captives. Now this number in 2 Kings 24 is quite frankly very hard to reconcile with the numbers we just read in Jeremiah chapter 52. It may be that Jeremiah is just talking about the men who were 20 years and older, where 2 Kings is talking about the totality of those who were taken, but we simply do not know exactly. The numbers in Jeremiah are also hard to reconcile with the fact that 70 years later, when they actually go back, there are some 42,000 plus that return to Jerusalem. So we don't know exactly how to reconcile all of these numbers, but we do know there were three stages of the deportation. In this second stage, there is another famous exile. He is, by, he is a man by the name of Ezekiel, and you know him from his book. So when you read the book of Ezekiel, if you do, 
you will understand that Ezekiel is writing that. He is prophesying while he is in Babylonian captivity as well. And then the final wave, of course, took place in 587, immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, which is what we looked at last week. So regardless of the number of people or uh, which wave they went in, those who remained alive, for the most part, were taken eventually to Babylon. There were a few of the poorest who were left in Jerusalem and in Judea, but the vast majority of them were taken into captivity. However, this slavery was a lot different. It's still slavery, but it was a lot different from the slavery that we looked at in Egypt. For example, I've already mentioned Ezekiel. We know that Ezekiel was free to prophesy, to minister to the people during the Babylonian captivity. We know that Daniel rose to a place of prominence, very much like Joseph. Daniel rose to a place of prominence in Babylon during his captivity. And we know that when Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued a decree allowing them to go back to Jerusalem after those 70 years were over with, there were many people who chose not to go evidently becoming comfortable in the land of Babylon. So it was slavery, but not nearly the hard slavery that we saw in Egypt and certainly not the population control that we saw in Egypt. All right, so that's the reality of the exiles. I just wanted you to see that this is in fact a real situation. So now we move to some advice for the exiles and for this, we are gonna turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses four through 14. Now, before I read that, I want you to understand that you and I are exiles as well. No, I do not mean that America has changed so much that we feel like foreigners, though there certainly is some truth to that. I mean what I mentioned a week or two ago, and that is if we rightly understand it, our citizenship is in heaven. We are on this earth for now, but ultimately we belong to the kingdom of God and our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, in that sense, we are exiles here as well. But of course, I also realize that there is a strong sense of division that some of you feel that is going on in our nation. And though you are not considering leaving our country, you are asking yourself, how am I going to keep living in this environment? How can I live like this for another four years or for another however many months this pandemic is going to continue? Well, Jeremiah has some advice not only for the exiles in Babylon, but for you and I, exiles in America. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the, the, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. All right, so these verses are part of a letter that Jeremiah is writing to those who are in exile. So historically, stay with me, historically we are back now before the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is writing to those who have already been deported in wave one or two. And he is telling them, he's giving them advice on how to live while they are there. Because there are actually some who believe that this exile is going to be very brief. In fact, there's some prophets that are telling the people in Babylon, this is just going to be a couple of years. In a couple of years, we'll be back at our homes in Jerusalem. But Jeremiah knows this is not the case. And therefore, uh, even though the, the Jerusalem is going to fall, these folks in Babylon are in a sense of denial, thinking this will all be over with soon. Now notice in verse 4, before I get to the advice, notice in verse 4 that God says once again, it is I who sent you into exile. God takes full credit for what is going on in their lives. It is not the Babylonians, it is God himself who have brought this upon his people. All right, so now I have six statements for you, six pieces of advice from Jeremiah for us as exiles. Number one, verse five, settle down. Now in our context, we might wanna say calm down, especially online. I mean, we've just gotta, we've just gotta take a deep breath and say we need to settle down. Well, that's not what Jeremiah is saying, though it is good advice for us. What Jeremiah is saying is this is going to last for a while. In fact, it's going to last 70 years. Now, a couple of those years have already ticked off. But it's going to be 60 plus more years. So settle down. That is build homes, plant gardens, eat of the produce of the land. The point being that you're not going to go home in two years, so you need to learn to live with it. Now, these folks were no doubt a lot like us. They, don't, they didn't like delays. They didn't like to exercise patience, especially when it was the result of God's judgment. So we've now been in this COVID and we're so tired of even hearing that word. We've been in this for nine months now and we're starting to hear talk of what some are calling COVID weariness. People tired of hearing about it and tired of living with it. And we don't know how much longer it's going to last, though we are hearing promises of the vaccine being imminent. So we too need to be patient, which means that we not grow accustomed to the new way of life. It simply means that we wait for God to deliver us. So number one, settle down. Number two is very similar. It's found in verse six. Jeremiah says, live life. He tells them to, to continue on with life. Get married, have children, give your sons and daughters to marriage. Now, he is not talking about intermarriage with the Babylonians. This has always been forbidden by God to the Israelites, though, of course, on multiple occasions, they disobeyed him and suffered the consequences. And that's not a racial issue. That is a faith-based issue. 
God knew that if they intermarried with any of the nations that surrounded them, that they would lose their identity as the people of God and would start worshiping idols, which is exactly what they did. So when he says here to marry, he's talking about among themselves so that they don't compound the problem of marrying outside the faith and and, uh, continue with idolatry. But it does mean that they were not to put their family life on hold. Again, this is going to be a long time. Now, there is a tension within these statements that we must acknowledge. They were to go on living life while at the same time longing to return to Jerusalem. In other words, this advice is not meant for them to become so settled in Babylon that they don't want to go back home, though I've already acknowledged that when Cyrus does issue the decree, many of them decided to stay in Babylon. But neither were they to continue pining away for the good old days. Psalm 137 and verse 1 says that they sat down by the waters of Babylon and there they wept. And when they were asked to sing the songs of Zion, they said, how can we? We cannot sing the songs of Zion while we live in a foreign land. Well, that same song goes on to say that if, my, that if I forget Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. And if I forget Jerusalem, may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And so they were not to forget, they were to long to go back home, but neither were they to sit by the river in despair and waste their life. Now this, of course, has a spiritual analogy to it. We, we've already acknowledged, are exiles, we are foreigners, our citizenship is in heaven. But while we are here, we are to live our lives like normal people do. But at the same time, we are to long. In fact, the Bible speaks about our groaning. We are to long for heaven. So there is this sense in which we are to long for heaven while living our lives here. And while living our lives here, we are to long for heaven. I know that's the same thing. I'm just saying it backwards. What I'm trying to help you see is the tension in that. That is, we're not to be so heavenly minded, as some say, that we're no earthly good. But we're not to forget about heaven either. We're to long for it as the Bible speaks about. The third piece of advice would have been by far the most radical of anything Jeremiah said. He says, pray for prosperity. Now, by prosperity, I do not mean merely financial blessings, though, of course, that would have been part of it. As the ESV says, that's what I'm reading from, it says the welfare But notice that it is not a prayer for personal prosperity. It is for the prosperity for the city in which they live. Now, do you mean to tell me that Jeremiah from God is saying to the people, I want you to pray for the cities of Babylon whose very people have come to Jerusalem and totally razed the city and burned the temple? And the answer is yes. And that is why this is so radical. It is the only time in the Old Testament that they are commanded to pray for their enemies or for unbelievers. In fact, if I can take you back to Psalm 137 for just a moment. Psalm 137 ends with this statement talking about the Israelites and their view of the Babylonians. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, that is the Babylonian children, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I mean, that's what they thought of the Babylonians. 
And yet God through Jeremiah is saying, I want you to pray for the city in which you live. That gives you a pretty good idea about how difficult that was going to be for them. And the reason, of course, is that as the city prospered, as the city had peace, God's people would experience it as temporary citizens. Certainly, it is better to have peace than to have persecution. This verse is is one of the verses that is often used for church planners in our day. Church planners love this verse and use it as as a verse to verify their methods of going into a community. And that is why many churches, ourselves included, are making sure that we are active in our community. We are engaging with the the schools. We are doing things in the community to better the community. And so church planners are often asking themselves, would our community suffer if this church ceased to exist? And so they're trying to make a difference in their community. They're trying to pray for and minister to the community so that it increases, the welfare is better, and therefore they prosper as well. And while all of that is a good application, and I'm convinced we ought to do good things in our community, and as you've heard earlier, we are certainly doing that. I do not think it is the most direct application for this particular verse. I think the more direct application is something we find in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says very clearly, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That is still a very radical and difficult command to follow. It is much easier and natural to post negatively about our enemies or to vent to others about our enemies or to simply seethe in anger or bitterness rather than pray for their good. So while it is helpful to be in the local schools and minister to teachers and students, And while it is great to give out food to the needy, as we've just done yesterday, and countless other acts of kindness for our community, the most direct application here is that we pray for our enemies. And that's a very difficult thing to do. The fourth piece of advice for these exiles and for us is found in verses 8 and 9. It is beware false prophets. People have a tendency to seek out advice from others who they think or know will give them the advice that they want to hear. Sometimes people will even go from one person to another until they hear what they want to hear. And there was plenty of that going on in Babylon and plenty of it going on today where people are not really looking for the advice that comes from God's word. They are looking for the advice that they want to hear. And as I mentioned earlier, there were prophets in Babylon, Israeli, uh, Israelite prophets in Babylon, who were telling them, this is just going to be very brief. In two years, we're going back to Jerusalem. And if all of that was true, then everything that Jeremiah says is false and worthless. But it was not true. It was false hope, which is why Jeremiah reminds them that it's going to be 70 years. And I say remind because he's already told them that, probably multiple times. Now, we don't use the word prophet much anymore because we have the full revelation of God in the Bible. But there are certainly plenty of Bible-quoting people who are consistently saying wrong things and thus need to be avoided. And there is certainly much false information in our day that is misleading and wrong. In fact, it seems like There's more false information these days than there is the truth. And as believers, we need discernment rather than believing everything we read 
or hear or nowadays even see. We need discernment. So we too must beware false prophets. His fifth piece of advice comes from verse 11, and it is trust God's promises. Verse 11 is no doubt one of the most famous verses in all of Jeremiah. I heard someone this past week call it a t-shirt verse or a coffee mug verse. That is, it's one of those verses that we like to put on things. In fact, I'm not much into life verses because I think they can often be taken out of context, but this is a life verse for many people. And yet I wonder how many people quote this verse or have it on a t-shirt or whatever without realizing the context in which it was said. That this was told to the Israelites in the very early stages of their exile in Babylon to a people whose city and temple will shortly be utterly destroyed and burned, and the fulfillment of this prophecy will not come for another 60-plus years. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the promise nor the fulfillment that is going to come, and we'll talk about that shortly. The promise being that God will not forget them, and he will bring them back home while also judging the Babylonians in the process. But what I am trying to do is expose the trite and superficial Christianity that is prevalent, which claims verses like this and believes then that nothing bad will ever happen to us and that life will be one blessing after another. And then when it doesn't come out that way, they get mad at God and turn away from him, all without realizing that this promise was given to a people who had lost their homes and their cities, or at least were about to, and were going to be slaves for decades to come. Now, it is true that God has a great future in store for us, but that does not mean that a promise like this says that everything will go well and we will always be healthy. It's not even an absolute that this promise of a great future is in this life. There will be many people who read Jeremiah's letter who will die in Babylon. They will not experience the deliverance that God is going to bring them, which is another reminder of the vast difference between our time frame and God's. Our desire to want everything now and God's plan sometimes taking much longer. But there is a future and that future is secure and that future is satisfying, which means that we can have hope in the midst of any crisis. The final piece of advice is found in verses 12 and 13. Seek God completely. He has not left us. He is available. He is accessible, but not through some half-hearted effort. Verse 13, actually, would, if, you, if you're really looking for a life verse, verse 13 would be better than verse 11. Because verse 13 is basically describing the Christian life. We are to actively pursue our relationship with God for all of our lives. And as usual, this does not mean that we are saved by such a pursuit. It simply means that when we are saved, we desire an ongoing and growing relationship with God that becomes our all-consuming passion. Sure, there's going to be peaks and valleys. That's true for all of us. There are going to be times when this pursuit is greater than it is at other times, but it ought to be the desire of our lives to have a relationship with God like this. Now, all of that is some pretty good advice, advice to exiles, or what we might call advice to Christians in crisis. And it is followed uh, by hope. That is, when we get this advice, that gives us hope in the midst of a crisis. And it is that hope 
that we turn to now in our final passage. This is found in the book of Lamentations. It's the book that just follows Jeremiah. Lamentations chapter 3, and we're going to see this hope for exiles. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, I mentioned to you last week or the week before that, last week, that Lamentations is also written by Jeremiah, and it is written post-destruction of Jerusalem. It is, as the name of the book suggests, a lament. That is, Jeremiah is lamenting what has happened. He is weeping over what has happened in Jerusalem. In fact, the very first verse of the book says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. And so he is, he is sad. He is grieving. And if you read the whole book, it is, it is very sad. And yet in the midst of all of that is these verses that we've just read this morning. These verses that are filled with hope. In the midst of this tragic and sad story, there are these tremendous verses that speak of the love of God and the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God never ending. And again, it is so significant that we understand the context here in which these words were voiced. These affirmations of God were not made on the mountaintop. They were made in the valley as Jeremiah is weeping over what has transpired. This devastating, probably the most devastating crisis in the history of this nation. He's weeping over it and yet in the midst of it, he talks about these great truths. Verse 23 is, without a doubt, the most well-known verse in the book of Lamentations. Although, once again, many people don't even know it's found here. I was at a community luncheon this week, and a man at my table was asked to pray uh, before the luncheon began. And so he got up and prayed, and as part of his prayer, he thanked God that his mercies are new every morning. And so when he sat back down right next to me, I turned to him and I said, you just used one of the verses that I'm going to be using this coming Sunday. And I was about to ask him, do you know where that verse is found? But before I could even ask that question, he said, Lamentations 3, verse 23. And I was fairly impressed that he knew where it was. Because while we use that phrase, your mercies are new every morning, sometimes we use it in our prayer time. Many of us probably do not know where it comes from, nor the context in which it is found. And then certainly the second half of that verse, great is thy faithfulness, is another verse we know quite well because there is a song, a hymn that is based on that. So we have hope in the midst of crisis because of God's character and, the, and his nature do not change. Therefore, we can trust in him while we wait. And again, I'll be the first to admit that I do not enjoy waiting. I'm not very good at it, but sometimes it's all we can do. And that is indeed the case when we are wanting God to act on our behalf. We can't speed him along. We can't nag him into action, but we can patiently wait knowing that our circumstances are known by him and that he hears us and one day he will deliver us. 
Now he did in this case, as he promised at the end of 70 years, he did bring them back. Persia comes along and they conquer Babylon. The Babylonian empire only lasted about 70 years. And Persia comes along and conquers them. And Cyrus is the king of Persia at this time. And he issues a decree that says the Jews are allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the temple. In fact, Isaiah had prophesied this very thing. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Isaiah was read by Daniel to King Cyrus. And then Cyrus issued the decree. Zerubbabel leads the first group of returnees, and they rebuild the temple. This is found in the first half of the book of Ezra. And then a lot of years later, Ezra comes along with another group. This is the second half of the book of Ezra. And Ezra leads a religious revival in the city of Jerusalem. And then finally, Nehemiah joins Ezra in 445 B.C., Nearly 100 years, not quite, but nearly 100 years after the first group with Zerubbabel go back. I wonder why Nehemiah gets all the contemporary credit. I mean, anytime there's a church building project, where do we turn? Nehemiah. And I'm guilty as well. I've preached through Nehemiah. I've never preached through Ezra. I mean, how come we don't talk about Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple or Ezra leading a revival? And all we want to talk about is Nehemiah building the walls. Well, God is faithful. He does not forget his people. Whether it's 430 years in Egypt or 70 years in Babylon or nine months and counting in COVID. He sees our suffering. He hears our cries and he will deliver. As we are very soon turning our attention to Christmas, I know this is Thanksgiving week, but I'm not the one putting up the the decorations early. But very soon we are going to be thinking about Christmas And as we turn our attention to Christ and the narrative surrounding his birth, that comes after years of silence as well. 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there was no prophetic witness. 400 years of silence. And then God spoke, sending his son, the Messiah, something the Old Testament repeatedly predicted would happen. And yes, that was after centuries of waiting. But just like Jeremiah said, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. It is good that we should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, when it comes to the inauguration of our salvation, we do not have to wait. God in Christ has done everything that needs to be done. He has provided everything that is necessary. It is for you now to repent and respond. And that's why the Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And so while we await the consummation, that is the finishing of our salvation, that we wait on. But the inauguration, that is repenting and trusting Christ, you do not have to wait. You can respond today, and the Bible is urging you to do just that. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and the opportunity we've had this morning to study it and to learn from it, not only just the the facts of history, but more importantly, your nature and your character. And I pray that we would see from these stories that you are a God who hears our cries, who knows our suffering, and who will deliver in your time and according to your will. And for that, we are thankful. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.